Hello and welcome to the Oxygen Addict Triathlon Podcast. We're brought to you every week by our sponsors, PrecisionFuelAndHydration.com. Personalize your fueling and hydration strategy so you can perform at your best. You can get 15% off your first order of electrolytes and fuel with the code OA22 at PrecisionFuelAndHydration.com. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm your host, Coach Rob Wilby, and every week I bring you an episode of this podcast to help motivate and inspire you. This week, we've got a great age group story with Dr. Kareem Hamad. Kareem recently took part in the 70.3 World Championships out in St. George. Um, He's a qualified doctor, and we get to talk. It's a great story, really, talking about how he manages and managed to balance his training around working some absolutely crazy shifts as a junior doctor. 12-hour on-calls, four nights of being on nights in a row, all, all kinds of things like that. So we had a, a long journey to get Kareem, three-year journey to get him to the 70.3 World Championships. And a lot of the learnings that we've had were around helping him manage his his busy life around the training that he wanted to do. And often accepting that the training that we had planned was just not going to be able to happen because he just had a 14 hour night shift or he was on Ramadan and hadn't been able to eat for 14 hours. Um, So there's an awful lot of stuff in here about putting health first and only doing the training that you can recover from. So yeah, so I really, really hope that you get a lot from and enjoy this age group episode. I'll hand you straight over to Dr. Kareem Hamad. Kareem, how are you today? Um, well, thank you. We are going to be telling a pretty cool age group story today. I think we're going to be telling the story of how a busy a busy doctor manages to balance training and night shifts around going all the way to qualify for the Ironman seventy point three World Championships, which have only just happened. So, the first thing to check in on is: Have you managed to recover from the jet lag of getting back from St George yet? Yeah, just about, just about. I still have the odd um, if I'm not working waking up at 10 30 um you know feeling like it's 6 a.m but other than that i'm feeling okay (laughs) that's good to hear so tell us then um qualifying for the 70.3 championships in saint george um let's start with that let's start about talking about the race itself and let's start with you know how saint george was as an experience because the most unexpected thing from our point of view watching it on you know the instagram reels and things that we saw from people before the race was I mean, the first thing that blew my mind was Lucy Charles's feed and she woke up and there's like three feet of snow where she was. And all of a sudden you go, okay, well, there's a, there's a snow Canyon during the race. It turns out it's actually snowing in St. George at the moment. So what was the weather like in the Rump's event in the few days that you were there? Yeah. Well, I think it kind of goes to show that, you know, as well prepared as you can ever be, uh, you can never be completely prepared. (laughs) And uh, I wasn't expecting that. I thought, Maybe, you know, okay, it might be a bit cold, maybe for Americans who are used to, you know, tr- lovely sunshine year, year all year round. Uh, but it was cold. It was really cold. It was uh, that kind of desert cold where the the air just feels, you know, like it's, like it's just never going to warm up. Um, yeah, okay. Even by midday, it would still stay quite cold. It was only really warming up by sort of 3, 4 p.m., which was no use, obviously. Um, oh, really? To us, yeah. So that was really, um, and by 4 p.m., it was, the weather was great. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was cold. <laughs> so it was interesting looking at the pictures of people in transition on race day morning. It literally was like woolly hats and down jackets and 
what was your what was your expectation of getting into the water in temperatures like that because i mean we don't it looked like it was it was down near freezing and that's what's reported we obviously don't do triathlons in that kind of temperature over here so what was your experience of getting ready to go in the water on race day yeah so i mean i was really cool i remember and one of the problems was um the shuttle buses they're all kind of at the same time which was ridiculously early sort of 5 a.m um however my actual wave my age group was uh, over an hour maybe an hour and a half after the professionals so that means i was um you know waiting for about an hour and a half just you know in my wetsuit in order to warm up just to kind of keep warm it's just another layer at that point yeah in a down jacket with my swimming cap on as well another layer (laughs) (laughs) just trying to just trying to stay warm you know doing the odd jog around just just to keep warm but um uh, the water itself, I was told, um, because I had, didn't have a chance to get in before, um, you weren't allowed on the day. And the only uh, sort of organised swim at the area was very much earlier in the week. So I was told it was a bit warmer than the air temperature. Um, and it was. So getting in the water itself wasn't too bad. It was still chilly. I'd guess about 15 degrees, the water. Okay. Um, but the real issue was getting out of the water. Um, that's kind of when it hit you, when you got your wetsuit off um and you know you're putting your um you know your uh helmet on and things like that and you've stopped for a minute but then it was it was really cold really really cold hey okay did you manage to warm up at all on the bike when you got out there or was it a, a case of because there was a there was a real thing on instagram there were obviously some people just racing in skin suits mm-hmm. there was a thing i read about holly lawrence having decided you know she could she can make the the 20 second gap or whatever by not putting anything extra on. And I was looking at her and thinking, man, everyone else is wearing long sleeve jackets and she's wearing like the traditional tiny little swimsuit thing she raced in. And she said afterwards, she was so cold. She could barely think for the first Mm. half of the bike leg. Mm. Um, Was that your experience getting out? A a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, my problem was, is basically I got out of the water um, and there's so many participate participants that is quite a long number that I had to remember, which was my uh, my race number, and I was sure I was three one six one. So I, I run to my bag, and my bag's not there, um, and okay. I had that panic moment where I was like, "Somebody's taken my bag!" So I run over to an official, and I'm shouting at the official. Well, not shouting at him, but I'm panicked. You know, someone's taken my bag. He comes. What number are you? Three one six one. So we're both looking for my bag everywhere. It's not there. Um, he asked to see my little wristband, uh, which has got the number on. So I showed him the wristband. He's like, no, you're 3616. So I'm like, oh, right, okay. So <laughs> I go, I finally find my bag. I probably wasted a couple of minutes there. Um, and because of that, I'm already in a panic to be quick. So my previous plan had been to put arm warmers and gloves. Um, my arm warmers that I've got are, are kind of a bit fleecy on the inside. Um, so that they do really keep you warm, those arm warmers. Um and I'm the kind of person that if my arms are warm, I feel generally warm. I think because, you know, they're out in the in front of me as well. So um, I started putting the arm warmers on, but I was just in such a rush after this little delay that I just thought, you know what? <laughs> I'm Leave not going to I'm going to be yeah. fine. I threw them, threw them down, put the gloves on and just set off. Um, and I was, I was, it was a bit of a Holly Lawrence because I was freezing for about five to 10 minutes. Um, but I think I was a bit more fortunate than her because um, my race uh, obviously started a bit later than than hers. So, you know, about half an hour into the bike, it, I think the temperature was a couple of degrees warmer. Um, and 
yeah, I started warming up uh, okay. So it wasn't, in the end, I was quite happy with that decision. It's super hard, isn't it, to get arm warmers over wet arms anyway at the best of times. But I think it goes to show when you when you get flustered and when you you feel the pressure of the timing and stuff, it's so hard or it's so easy to make a decision that you probably wouldn't make in the rational light of day oh, to 100%. save a couple of seconds now that you end up being freezing for the next two hours. Yeah, yeah 100%. I think I don't know how much blood was in my brain at that point, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it was a questionable, questionable decision. Uh, and I'm, I'm just lucky. I was really lucky that I didn't get a, um, too cold you know if the weather had had turned a bit worse or um, you know uh, I didn't quite manage to warm up that I really might have regretted that decision yeah. <laughs> what would you do differently next time if you if you went again next year or if someone else was going next year what would you what would you plan to do in situations like that I think you've just got to prepare for it so um, like if I was going to do another race abroad or even really just any race one thing I will get good at now is putting my arm warmers on you know, I've never once put my arm warmers on sort of in anger you know in any sort of <laughs> any sort of rush at all so the first time I ever tried that was <laughs> literally then during the race um because in my in your head you think putting arm warmers on like it's like socks for your arms it's like how hard can it be but hard <laughs> yeah no totally I can so, I know, can still I think... remember doing a, a sprint race in the early days and and then pool sprint and not having worn my tri-top to swim in thinking it would maybe save me a second or whatever trying to pull my tri-top over as I was as I was standing by my bike and it just getting completely stuck and rolled up and having to ask another athlete to help help yeah. roll it down it's like do you see his torn between thinking well I'm in a race but this poor guy's not going to get out on the bike so yeah it's interesting how something that's so simple that you don't even consider it's the same with putting socks on sometimes isn't it if you don't practice and if you don't have them rolled a certain way it can be really hard to get them on on race day yeah yeah, yeah. okay so the, the bike course itself then from from what i've seen online because i've never been there it's a split transition the lake's somewhere else and you end up riding out and around and back again what's your experience of the bike course like um, yeah, so it's a beautiful course, really, really beautiful. The the scenery is amazing. You know, it's everybody says that it, uh, you know when they go to Kona, they they can be uh, underwhelmed by riding on a motorway. Um, it's, so it's definitely not that. You're not just riding on a motorway. You're riding sort of through canyons, beautiful uh, views everywhere. I mean. I would say that you enjoy the views more on the practice rides <laughs> than you do on the day. <laughs> um, but yeah, in that sense, it's lovely. Um, it's a hilly course, so you're either going up or down. You're, there's very, very little flat, I would say. It's all up or down. Um, it's quite gradual, so there's no climbs where I, you know, felt like, you know, oh, I'm in danger of having to get off here or go above, you know, way above the power that I'm sort of willing to go. Um, but it is all up or down. Okay. So it's so it's a very scenic course, but people need to prepare for the fact that it's exceptionally hilly. Yeah. 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 Okay. And how did you feel on the bike? Yeah. So uh going into the race, um, I'd have I'd had a little niggle in my back that basically it would rear its head usually after about an hour of riding. Um but it had felt like it had been better the last few weeks. And I did a practice ride and uh, sort of a practice brick session where I tried to uh, simulate the course as much as possible. And it was okay for that. 
So I was hoping that it would be fine. But I think just the up and down nature of the bike meant that I'd go from, you know, being stretched out in aero to stood up, stretched out in aero, you know, very, very, very often. So that really set it off. And about an hour and a half in, up until that point, I'd been, you know, perfectly sort of going to my power um, targets and I was really happy with it. But then it just completely, I felt this popping feeling in my back as I as I was climbing out the saddle and um, I was I was in trouble then. For a second, I was thinking, oh no, is my race over? Am I going to have to pull over? Uh, but, you know, I desperately wanted that medal and, I've ne- you know, I really, really didn't want to pull out of the race. So I just really eased on the power and you know that was fine i think i would have been okay on any other course but because it was the um that hilly course where most of the climbing comes at 70 or 75 kilometers in something called snow canyon and it's a it's a big ascent up to the peak which is about a thousand meters um of elevation and um that was a big problem so i ended up mm. basically having to pedal with one leg uh, going up and you know i really um i think i lost quite a lot of time trying to get up that hill but the benefit of it was first of all then i had a big descent down um which was quite scary that <laughs> I, I i like to think of myself as quite a brave descender um but i was really on the edge there i was you know i stayed managed to stay in aero but i was getting to speeds of 70 kilometers an hour which um in aero in the crosswinds uh, you know with a disc wheel and other participants on the course was quite scary actually yeah um so yeah but i got to the end of the bike feeling really fresh <laughs> one thing i knew is that i definitely didn't exceed my power <laughs> limit for a good run <laughs> it's pretty hard to have to do a, a big epic climb like that with only one leg really able to contribute to the climbing isn't it it's uh it's it's less than ideal in the middle of a world championships i guess yeah and you know it wasn't even just the physical aspect it was as well demoralizing because you know i've had quite a lot of people on the bike up until that point and then you see all these people who you've been passing coming back Uh, something that usually is my strength is quite a light athlete um you know usually the hills i really look forward to being able to uh, pull some places back uh, on the big strong athletes who can you know do 250 watts for days <laughs> <laughs> you know it's nice to but yeah so that, that was a bit demoralizing um but you know i was happy just to be able to finish the race at that point yeah cool so you managed to get yourself to t2 and how did you feel then were you even confident you'd be able to run at this point or was it just a case of seeing how things felt so before I started running, I was confident because um, basically this injury that I've had is never it's never shown itself on the run. I've always been able to run completely uh, fine. So I, I thought, oh, that'll be OK. One of the only issues was the practice course that I kind of drew myself up at home, um, which is the hilliest course I can find locally. Uh, the only problem is, is at home, it starts with the descent. So it starts with about three kilometers of descending and then goes to the big hill whereas this course is five kilometers straight uphill um as soon as you get off the bike and then five kilometers back and then five kilometers straight uphill again and then five kilometers back so you know when i where i'm used to running downhill off the bike now i'm running uphill and my aim had been to run about four minutes 40 per kilometer up the hills and then about four minutes down the hills um so i started and i, I was you know well within my target if, if anything i was a bit faster than my target I did feel terrible, but I think that was 
like looking back to it now, that's just a reasonable amount of terrible to feel running up a hill as quick as you can. <laughs> so yeah, um, uh, I actually felt okay. And then as soon as I turned around to run down the hill, I felt absolutely great. So the benefit of, uh, of, of having to hold back on the bike really paid you back onto the run in terms of feeling fresh. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just going to say, so not, not even in just in terms of time, but certainly in terms of enjoyment. So, you know, I was, I was saying earlier to you that basically if I had gained even an extra 10 minutes on the bike, overall, my position barely would have changed, um, you know, where I would have come out of, let's say the 3000 people, I barely would have gained, you know, 50 places, hundred places. Um, I think, and I think part of that is that the world championships is so stacked towards the ridiculously fast people that, you know, it wouldn't have done you know, much difference at all. However, I actually got to enjoy the race so much. I've never ran with such a smile on my face. So yeah, I was yeah. really, really happy with that. And was your perception on the run of running faster than the people who were around you coming off the bike? Is that part of what sort of added to the enjoyment of it? Oh, I, I thought I was going to win the race, to be honest, Rob. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like um, down the hill, I was, I was probably running four, four minutes to 4.10 per kilometre. But in my head, I was running, you know, sub three. I was uh, just because it's one of those courses where a lot of people blow up on the bike. A lot of people blow up on the run. So there's so many people who are walking, crawling it um, at that stage going nowhere really especially up the hills um, and even down the hills because that can be quite quite a lot on the quads and some people will be you know completely cramped up and still have another four kilometers of downhill straight to go so you know i passed a lot of people uh, on that run which is really nice yeah yeah do you know it's an interesting reflection that isn't it that you were almost you're almost forced well you were forced into the position of massively un- under biking compared to what you trained for and then the trade-off of that is you get to experience what running feels like off the bike if you if you're a bit under the not the power target but almost the power limit. And I think there's a mental temptation to think, okay, I'm going to bike right to the limit of what I think I can do, and then try and sort of hang on on the run. It's a very different experience running for an hour and a half, feeling fantastic when everyone else is falling apart, isn't it? Yeah, and one of the things that I felt like I barely had you've know, been able to put any power out on the bike but when I look back to it on training peaks um because I ride to power uh, my normalized power was only 10 or 12 watts below my target in the end oh, so it wasn't it, it wasn't even um anywhere near what I was expecting it to be uh, and part of that is you know sort of going up and down hill uh you know your your average power whilst you're there is constantly a bit lower because you know you think that let's say you're going down a descent and now now your average power is down to 100 and whatever because you know you've not yeah, been you just can't put the power out going yeah down when i look at normalized yeah. power that kind of corrects for that um yeah it was actually not that much less than what i was intended to do so really if i hadn't had that injury i wonder if i'd have ended up uh over biking and you know <laughs> yeah I think that's a very it's a very common thing, especially in a in a big event in an A race in the World Championships. Everybody is is trying to be right on the very limit, and it's it's been really interesting for me to listen to your explanation of how it felt running. Because as a coach, that's what you want your athletes to experience. But I think as an athlete, especially as a triathlete, we want to get the best performance we can out of our bike legs sometimes. 
and kind of convince ourselves that that's that's going to not play such a big part in the run. Mm-hmm. I almost always think that the answer to I didn't feel great on the on the run, boss, was well, you probably overbiked then, even if it didn't feel like it. Mm-hmm. And it's so great to hear you experience such a really positive run at the end of all this because it basically made your made your world championships, didn't it? Yeah, hundred percent. I think uh, it's you know I, I'm not here to win uh, you know to win money, prize money or whatever you know. So really, the important thing is how it feels, and it's a lot more fun to race. I, I've raced a lot of race. I was saying, my, in fact, the race that I qualified for the world champs, um, I basically did the opposite. I, I wasn't in the best run form, so I said I'm going to swim and bike and make sure those two are good, <laughs> and then I'll <laughs> see what I can do. And I felt better at the end of the run at the world champs than I did at the beginning of the run um for this you know i ran like 20 minutes faster so um and you know that was a pretty flat course in in, it's in poland that i did uh the qualification so it was just a completely different experience um you know my previous race i was hanging on from from three four kilometers in straight away i was walking the aid stations because i was in you know survival mode um you know i was just I didn't have any paces in mind during my last during the qualification race. I was just happy if I don't walk in between aid stations. That was my deal with myself: is just don't yeah. walk in between aid stations. And when you're in sort of survival mode um, like that, you're just not going to enjoy the race. You know, you're you're spending a lot of money and time, um, you know, training for this race, and then you do something and you spend a few hours just suffering. Then you know, it's, it's not as fun as uh, if you manage to just stay within your limits and you know kind of yeah. race the whole thing yeah but you know what the the contrast of your experience here is interesting because i remember your bike leg at poland being the experience of being in with some really quick guys do you remember and you were saying yeah we were all we were all absolutely racing each other on the bike yeah. and that was okay because that was your you know that was your aim to make the most of the swim and bike that day isn't it interesting the difference that underbiking makes to both your experience, but also to the run split. The fact that it's 20 minutes faster on the run on a course like St. George, we've got to think you would have run 125 probably on a flat course on the same day in, in, in the same sort of shape at St. George. So, I mean, 20 minutes is a, is a massive difference to give up on the bike, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think I could have like, if it was a so as well the bike's very hilly so i don't i think if it had been a flat race even doing the exact same power that i did i don't think i would have given 20 minutes on the bike compared to um a different flat course you know i think yeah. maybe maybe five um, yeah. so yeah i think it, it made it was definitely the way forward <laughs> but i think <laughs> that's I think, that's experience you want to have in future isn't it yeah, like, exactly running, it, running faster relative yeah to it took else. it took doing that you know half marathon of just pure suffering to say no that's it i'm dropping i don't care what it's part of it was i never really wanted to run to do a bike with average under 200 watts because you know i look at other people and especially you know on instagram and on everything if you if you ever go on zwift and the power that people are putting out is just you know so much um and i'm quite a, a light athlete but even so you know, I was thinking, right, I'm going to have to, you know, power 200 watts. Like, it would be embarrassing to not not do that. But to be honest, um, you know, I, I go quite fast with with 180. And that was, that was my target at, at this point is that, you know, I, my position has improved a lot. And, you know, 
at the end of the day, I can't, I realise you can't pick a number based off of how much you like the number. You have to kind of start low and, and go and, you know, uh, when I first started with you and I was barely a year into triathlon, my target watts for these races was 200. I've got I've become a much better biker over long distance, especially on the TT bikes. And now I'm aiming for 180. Uh, so yeah. I think that I'm being a lot more sensible these days. Yeah. <laughs> I think the thing that you speak to there is it's like the great unspoken dirty secret of triathlon, isn't it? I think everybody looks at the numbers of the people are posting and wants to be, you know, whatever it is, pick a round number, mm-hmm. whether it's if you're at 175, you want to be doing 180. If you're doing 180, you want to be doing 200 or 300 or whatever that is. And I remember a really... Like the best example of this for me was was working with Matt Bottrell and he was telling me how he had exactly the same feelings as when he was going in to race the National 25. He knew the numbers that Wiggins had put out when he'd set the, the British Championship. Mm-hmm. And he was sort of saying, it's embarrassing to you know, to not have that same sort of power. So even, even a guy like that is comparing his numbers to, but his thing was, doesn't matter what the raw number is if you can go fast for it and that's ultimately what we're measured on isn't it it's how fast we go not what how much power exactly. we put out exactly yeah. like that's why you know sometimes i do wonder if it'd just be better to not even race the power obviously i i have to because i uh i massively have bike if i don't <laughs> but um <laughs> but not in that sense just in the sense that um you know i i think i i don't know i don't know if, first of all if i believe everyone because you know, when I'm doing 170, 180 watts and, you know, my fellow competitors, are, oh yeah, average 260 watts of that. And I look at our times and they're the same. You know, I think there's something not right here. Either either everyone picks, you know, some special power meters and mine's rubbish. But I mean, I've, I've used different ones. I've looked for that special power meter. It doesn't exist. <laughs> so, you know, I, don't, I, I think I the think... answer, mate, is you're incredibly slippery. I think, <laughs> like I said to you, I the listeners won't know this, but I was driving for a day out with my son and you came the other way with your brother and your last, your last race sim ride um, just completely randomly. And as we went by both, my son and my partner both said, look how fast that guy looks. <laughs> you know, you, you this tiny little aerodynamic shape tucked in on your, on your Canyon bike. So it's all down to, you know, your aerodynamics, yeah, I isn't think it? Just r- riding quick is, um, yeah, you just need to forget about the power. Exactly. You know, um, I think sometimes where I'm even more focused on the power, you end up being less aero because you're more, you know, sort of rocky. You're, you're out a bit further up trying to push the power down. Whereas if you just think, yeah, I just want to ride quick. I just want to get on my bike and ride it. Then you don't yeah. really think about those things. But yeah. Yeah. Um, Man, I think it's a massive thing for people listening as well. If we if we do an FTP test and the point is we're doing it in the aero position, there's nothing to be gained by sitting up to, to yeah. try and squeeze an extra 10 or 20 watts out. Yeah. I know people are going to be able to do that. I know people are going to be able to put more power out sitting up. But yeah. the point is practicing being in that position well, so that you yeah, get accurate I- numbers. That's actually the the biggest thing that changed my biking. So just a little bit of context is that when I first, my first race, my bike was over three hours, 20 or something, uh, my first ever triathlon. Um, And my power, so then even when my power got quite good, in fact, there was a time where my FTP was around 270 watts, um, which was uh, for me for about 4.6 or 4.7 watts per kilo, um, I think, uh, something like that. And the difference was... um, we were quite, I was quite early in training with you. And if you gave me a hard workout, 
um, anything with FTP, you know, written in it, if that's sessions, sweet spot, whatever. Well, I wouldn't be going near my TT bike. The road bike would be straight on the uh, on the turbo. I'd be stood up out the saddle, you know, 20 minutes of power. I'll, I'll give you 300 watts one way or another. <laughs> that's how I felt. And then, you know, the problem with that is I'd set an FTP, you know, super high. And then I'd get to my workouts and I wouldn't be able to complete them in aero, you know, um, I wouldn't even be able to go anywhere near completing the Monero. So that meant that now I'm forced to do all my training uh, on the road bike. Otherwise, it's just a DNF. I literally cannot do it. So I was doing a lot of my stuff. And I think that the professionals, a lot of people will look at the professionals and see them riding their road bikes loads. Um, and that's okay for them because I think they spend like 20 hours a week just on the bike and they'll do five of them in aero and then the other 15 you know, on the road bike, gravel bike, whatever. Whereas if I'm only doing five hours a week on the bike, then, you know, they better well be an aero. Otherwise, you know, I'm just going to have no. So it got to the stage where finally I caved into you and I did an, an FTP test in aero. And literally not one month ago, my FTP on the road bike was 270. I did one in aero and it was just over 200. So it's like a 70 watt decrease and i was you know all out like rocking terrible form um and from then on i was like okay that's it every single workout is in error you know every single one and to begin with it it was uh, you know i couldn't even stay in error I'd, I'd, I'd have to do one minute error one minute off or you know um sometimes even like five minutes error half an hour break <laughs> five minutes error and it just got slowly better and better um and you know my position was uh, was good when I was in Arab. It wasn't comfortable still for me. I wasn't used to it. Now I, it's the opposite. So now I, I'm in Arab. Even though my FTP is still a lot lower than it was on the road bike, um, it gradually increased and increased um, up to about, I think, around 240, 250. And, but the biggest difference was I was comfortable, you know, um, and that meant that I, I would be able to actually stay in Arab for the race. And um, previous, I was able to stay in aero mostly during the races, but it was at a cost. You know, it was really uncomfortable. It was mentally taxing just to stay in aero. Um, and it was, you know, physically taxing as well. I, I, I couldn't put down power. Um, it made a big difference. So, uh, yeah, that, that if I could give advice to anyone listening, if you're doing, you know, five hours of biking a week and you want to be good on your aero bike, whatever position you're going to be in when you race, you have to practice it, you know your easy rides, your, your threshold sessions, you just have to put the time in. It's not pleasurable, especially to be, begin with. And the advice you gave me at the time was just have breaks and, you know, try and slowly extend the the amount that I'm in air and, yeah, made a huge difference. I think you're doing everybody a great service by talking about this because, it's, <laughs> like I said, it's the great unspoken dirty secret, isn't it? If you can, If you can commit to doing a test to find out where you are in the aero position and yeah. then gradually increasing it things will gradually get better and if nothing changes nothing's going to change but it's funny you know I, I i used to almost be embarrassed about like the watts that i was doing uh for a race you know i'd go and do a pretty good race um and with a pretty good bike time and you know thoughts would cross my head like hiding my power on strava and things like that where you know i think oh you know, everyone thinks I'm a strong biker because I did a good time, but look at my watts, it's 50, 60, 70 less than, you know, this guy or less than that guy. 
but you know we it's not we're not always racing on Zwift <laughs> it doesn't matter um like what's is irrelevant really um and even so you know it's it's not really about that that's the whole point of triathlon I think is that you're not trying to just achieve a good bike race and certainly not a good something that looks good on Strava <laughs> yeah I I get it I'm exactly the same as you I'm someone who could always go faster for lower watts than it mm. seemed other people could and whenever we did anything on Swift I'd get killed mm. and I'd be two or three groups down on where I'd be riding in the outside world and I'm thinking this this can't be right I can ride with these guys outdoors but I, I suppose it's better to be that way it's better to be faster for the power that you have mm. than slower for having 350 watts at threshold yeah. right yeah, yeah. Exactly. Okay, so let's talk a little bit then about your your background, your day job, and how you how basically how you balance being a triathlete around being a doctor, because some of the some of the most impressive things I've seen you do have actually not been physical feats of training or racing, but just dealing with the tiredness and fatigue yeah. from the amount of night shifts you've had. So, talk to us a little bit about your job over the last couple of years. Well, if it's all right with you, I'll start a little bit earlier because I yeah, think yeah. it's in the story a little bit um, of just how I got into running. Uh, so, and and it'll, it'll sort of it'll make sense in a in a second. Bear with me, Rob. <laughs> so, my I kind of owe that to my big brother. So he he's five years older than me, and when I was really young, you know, maybe eleven years old or something. So he would have been sixteen, seventeen at the time. Um, yeah. I just loved hanging out with him. He he was, you know, I, anything that he would do, if I could if I could join him, I was down for it. And one day he came to me, oh, do you want to go for a run? And he'd recently gotten into running. So I said, like, yeah, yeah, you know, go with my big brother, go running. I said, yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. And so we set off and I think he, we, he did like a seven or eight kilometers. And I remember I was dying for the whole thing, the whole thing. I was absolutely, you know, all out just to to stay with him but because you know he's my big brother I didn't want to say anything I didn't say I didn't say a single word didn't ask to slow down nothing you know I just survived it and then the next day he'd he'd come be like oh do you want to go for a run and I was like yeah 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 <laughs> and pretty much the same thing happened and really just since then probably my only time I'm I'd say I'm, I'm a reasonably good runner um sort of without too much effort certainly not talented um on the bike or the swim um you know that was all like you know I really had to work for any gains that I've got in in either of those um but my the one talent that I've I've always had really since those days was just being able to push myself um and that's sort of mentally and physically you know um when other people say they've you know put in a full max effort um and then I look at them and they're you know they look all, all right to me, in my head, I'm like, it doesn't look like a max effort to me. When I'm putting max effort, my heart rate is at its max. You know, I'm actually literally dying. Like the only way that I will stop is if I'm, you know, physically cramp or die or something. So I've always been good at that. It's probably since those days. Um, and when I, I always wanted to be a doctor, and um, I, I joined medical school, thinking that you know I wouldn't have time really to to do much. And I was kind of from a football background, but. Um, and I didn't really, I didn't really have time to do much training, but I kind of got into marathon running just, just for fun. I thought, oh, I'll sign up for a half marathon. Didn't train for it. I did it, enjoyed it. I think I did it in a, a 130 or 131. So, you know, it wasn't um, too bad. So I was like quite generally fit. I did basically the same with a marathon. And I got to my fourth year of medical school and I was like, oh, I want to do um, triathlon. And medical school's busy, 
But I think in a way, compared to being a doctor, there's a lot less of the mental um, stress and, you know, you do get a lot more free time. So during my fourth year of medical school, although at this, at this point I couldn't swim, so that was one, uh, one barrier that I'll go into maybe a bit later, I signed up to do a half Ironman and my brother had done one um, a few months earlier or a year earlier. So you know, that was kind of my inspiration for it. I thought, oh, that looked really fun. He's the kind of guy that makes everything look really fun. So I was just like, oh, I better, better give that a go. Um, so I signed up for it. Um, and, you know, I had enough time to train. I would do my, basically what I did was I did a long, I did, I was a, the classic weekend warrior, I'd do a huge, huge session on a Saturday. And at the time it was still, you know, the idea of doing something crazy was motivating me, you know, on a Saturday, I'd be cycling for three hours and then running for two hours. That was so crazy that it just really motivate me. And, you know, that, that was fine in itself. And I managed to get to the um, race and I, and I completed the half iron, which is my, my only target. And it was in just over six hours that I completed it, but it was a hilly course of Marbella. Um, and I, at the time I, I really thought that I could do much better. I always, I was always um, very ambitious. <laughs> so I thought, oh, when I was racing, there were people flying past me looking like robots or like some sort of aliens with these, you know, fancy helmet. I was just on a road bike. They're in these fancy helmets, these weird positions. I thought, yeah, I'll do that. That, that looks fun. So, you know, right then it was my goal to, okay, I'm going to get good at triathlon. And as with anything, I got, you know, quite quickly much better. But then it really plateaued. And particularly plateaued when I started working. So this was during the COVID pandemic. So I'm about three years now into being a doctor. Um, so when I started, it's just kind of when the COVID pandemic was kicking off. So it was there was a lot of um, a lot of you know tough shifts at the time, and pretty much it took training myself into a hole um, to realise that actually I'm not managing. I'm not doing this well by myself now. And the problem was I would be doing Working as a doctor, especially at the beginning, um, it's very stressful because, you know, I don't want to say you don't know what you're doing, but um, certainly you don't have that control over your day that you do in some other jobs. You know, you, you might go in and have a great day. You might go in and have a terrible day. You might get yelled at. You might get, um, you know, you might do something really good. You might watch somebody die. You know, you don't have any control over the and sort of mental and physical stress of, of the day and that's not to mention the really difficult rotors that um, we start on in particular where you know you go from straight from university to doing you know there was times where I, I was doing really really long long um, weeks where you know I'd be on course so that'll be a 12-hour shift for let's say four of the seven days um, and then working on the weekend too so you know of that of those days I'd only have one day where I'm, I'm actually off so yeah. I knew that day I'll probably be exhausted anyway. But the thing is, is if let's say I missed a session because I was just too exhausted to go out because I've always had that ability to, um, you know, just really push myself. Um, I ended up doing some really, you know, midnight two hour runs or, you know, a, like an all out effort to get a session done that I had planned to do. Um, and even more than that, sometimes in my head, <laughs> I would do a, a really hard session and I would think, oh, that's all I could give. And then that would scare me. I think, yeah, but my race is longer than 10 kilometers. 
So I, that can't be all I can give. And then I'd have to do another 10 kilometers just to prove to myself that I'd be able to do, you know, longer. Anyways, the long, you know, kind of the end product of that. So I remember I was just outside one of the wards. Um, and I don't know how I came across you, Rob, but basically uh, I saw I saw some sort of advert or some sort of um, maybe on Instagram or training peaks or something. I was just like, and it was particularly the fact that you're interested in people with, you know, busy lives who can't always, um, you know, tick off every session or can't always dedicate you know, 20 hours a week or whatever some people manage. So I, I gave you a ring and I was actually, and you don't know this, but um, you rang me back. So, oh yeah, that's it. I booked a, um, a calling slot and you rang me. But so, yeah, actually one of the things I didn't, I didn't realize um, uh, at the time, but I think that you, yeah, so I think I rang you outside of the um, award and and you answered and you basically, I, I gave you my story and you really nicely kind of put it to me that, you know, you're, you're not alone. <laughs> this is a completely normal thing that you're feeling. Like it is difficult to manage to do this all by yourself. So I started training with you. Um, and one of the biggest differences in the training with you um, that's really important if you're doing so any sort of busy lifestyle, particularly as a doctor, is that missed sessions and things like that where you're too exhausted to to do or you've had to stay in late at work or whatever even if you're just not feeling well rather than doing a big hero session to make up for it the next day um you know you would just say to me right you've missed that just move on it doesn't matter one session is not gonna you know make or break you look back at your training feet. you've done this 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 you know just move on you will do better now to just recover if you're feeling so tired that you can't do this session then that means you definitely need to recover not that you definitely need to do more <laughs> um, and that was probably the biggest difference really um, and it made a lot of guilt-free um, training rather than that kind of over under training that I was doing previous yeah it's funny <laughs> before the call I was looking back over some of our notes that I've made over the years and and I could kind of see the evolution of you from the person you were then to the person that you are now and thinking, wow, I'd forgotten you were ever like this. I'd forgotten there were the, you know, I went out and did a two hour run at midnight. I'd forgotten <laughs> that there was the, you know, instead of doing the e-pace run, I decided to do a 10K time trial to see where <laughs> I was that. It and And it's such a, you know, you're not alone. It's such a common yeah. thing that people think, well, you know, if I'm going to do the race, I have to do this in training. It was so hard for you to balance what you wanted to do in athletics around what you had to do around the work with the, the, you know, the four on call 12 hour shifts in a row, the night shift blocks you would get. That's the thing that always got me. I don't know how any human survives what doctors have to go through mm. when you have a block of three night shifts where, where you don't yeah. see the sun and then yeah, you well, want to train when you get out yeah, because that's so your life. The night shifts, for example, um, you know, I would, what I would do is I would basically, you miss a, a night of sleep the first night so you're already starting one one night of sleep down because it's very difficult to sleep during the day when you've not already been doing night shifts okay so you just miss a, a night of sleep then I would usually sleep four hours a day each night just four hours wake up around 2 p.m get my workout done just in time to get home have a shower you know um have a meal and then go to the night shift so you know every single day for four days in a row I would have four hours sleep um, and you know you end up basically as well it's little things that you don't realize like there isn't a proper canteen open or anything like that and of a night shift 
So pretty much for four days, your your main meals are like those little Tesco sandwiches, you know. And so you go through four days of eating rubbish on the wall. So you, there's always some like box of chocolates and stuff. So you pretty much eating chocolates for, you know, energy and sleeping about four hours a day trying to get your training done. So the, the night shifts in particular were the biggest struggle for me. Mm. Yeah, really, really tough. And I remember, you know, I remember sitting down and sort of saying, well, let's just make this really easy. Let's take all the exercise out and let's just go for a walk in the woods. And you looked at me like I was an insane person. Like, but I, but I want to do, you know, I want to do this world championships next year. And it's like, but all your body can do right now. It's obvious, isn't it? Now, when we look back, you're not eating, you're not sleeping. You've got an incredibly stressful job for 12 hours where people's lives are in your hand. Mm. Probably the best thing to do with the limited time you've got is not to go to the track and absolutely hammer yourself with a session of, you know, 1K reps around the running track or whatever. But it's so hard to move away from the, you know, I've seen Lionel Sanders do this on Instagram or whatever. Yeah, you did really well to get through that phase and just survive, (laughs) let alone survive with any kind of fitness. Yeah, yeah. No, I think um, part of it as well is, you know, ideally into any race you'll put, you know, 20, you'll put great weeks of work where, you know, you manage to tick off all you said. That's, that's obviously ideal. Um, I think the hard bit is to admit when you can't do that and to mm-hmm. admit that the next best thing is at least to not sort of put yourself in a hole. And then the worst thing is to try and, you know, do the workouts when you can't, um, when you can't recover from them, you know, like it, it, it's, I think that's the hardest bit. The hardest bit for me was to admit, hold on, I actually can't, I can't do the training and recover. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's so massive. It's such a mature realization to go, okay, I'm going to do everything that I can, but I'm not going to do more than I can recover from. And when you get that in place, all of a sudden everything works in synergy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really cool, man. That's awesome. Tell us about Gaza. Tell us about your trip out to Gaza. Yeah, um, so I work for a charity um, in Liverpool that goes to uh, war-torn areas to do renal transplants, kidney transplants. Um, so one of the places they go is got is the Gaza Strip um, in the Middle East, and this uh, area it's it's really small um, but really really densely populated. It's got over two million people in it, um, and it's about the size of the world if you if you're from up north. Um, and basically, there's a lot of people there with kidney failure, but it's mostly young people. The average age is about 17, actually. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. But the problem is, is um, first of all, it's, it's a very sort of poor area where, um, you know, things are controlled going in and out. So um, they don't have very good infrastructure there. And the dialysis there, even in the UK or in a, in a developing country, if you're on dialysis, uh, it greatly shortens your life expectancy, unfortunately, if you have kidney failure. Um, and, you know, the only real sort of the gold standard best treatment is a kidney transplant. Um, but in war-torn areas, when when a war breaks out, um, it's really difficult to get to the hospital for um, for dialysis. An example of that is in, um, uh, I think it was 2008, there was a war in Gaza and half of the renal transplant page, half of the kidney failure patients died just because they couldn't reach the um, dialysis in time because of obviously wars going on. So uh, we go and we do kidney transplants. Um, so it's it's a, a consultant surgeon from the Royal Liverpool Hospital. And over over the last 10 years, um, we've done over 100 uh, kidney transplants there. 
Um, and the goal is to set up a kidney transplant unit there run by the people of Gaza. Um, so, you know, we're training them up and things like that. Um, and I was lucky enough even to go um, this year in February, I went uh, most recently. And um, yeah, it's, it was, it's really um, sort of fulfilling work. You know, you'll, you'll go there for a couple of weeks um, and, you know, I help out as a, a, with the surgeries as well as, you know, you, um, it's, it's very, it's just very, a very rewarding work. But yeah, it was an interesting conversation with you when I, <laughs> I let you know, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm going to struggle a bit with the swimming in particular. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'll just be running. Um, and yeah, uh, really all I could do that week was um, <laughs> I, I went for a morning run around the Gaza Strip every at like 7am every morning. And I didn't think running is very popular in, in Gaza at the moment because everyone was looking at me like I was crazy. <laughs> I think, <laughs> you know, they've got bigger things to worry about um, than running for fun in uh, in Gaza at the moment. Yeah. But wow. um, but yeah, it's, that's what, one thing I'm, I'm really passionate about. So I'll just to mention the charity name. It's the Liverpool International Transplant Initiative, um, if, you, if you're interested, yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, we'll uh, we'll put a link to that in the in the show notes on both the podcast and YouTube as well. We'll make sure we get that in there for sure. And listen, the other thing I wanted to to talk to you about and, and to highlight was really the challenge of Ramadan mm-hmm. around triathlon training. So, talk talk to us about what what the impact of that is on your daily life, and and especially the impact on you as a triathlete. Yeah, I mean, huge. Uh, so. As a as a Muslim, uh, we do a month of fasting where basically for that month, we don't eat nor drink. So including water from sunrise to sunset. Um, at the moment, Ramadan's falling on the su- in the summer as well. So it's really long. Usually it's from about, you know, three in the morning um, so up until um, uh, around 8 p.m., 9 p.m. Yeah. Now, another big challenge as well as sleep so that means i have to wake up very early <laughs> and and try and stuff some food down at you know three in the morning uh, as you'd imagine that does not help with sleep <laughs> trying to trying to go back to sleep feeling like you're about to pop <laughs> you know um because you've just drank about two gallons of water because you know you've got training now the thing is um as you probably you know heard from this podcast like for me, when I start Ramadan, it's not an option to uh, not train for a month. So I always really want to figure out how I can still manage to train despite, you know, without the water and the food. Um, and it's still a work in progress because really you've got a couple of options. You can either do it early on whilst you're topped up in water and food. But then the problem is you're a bit of a zombie for the rest of the day because, you know, you've kind of used your energy <laughs> requirements already. And, you know, when you're going into work and, you know, you've got other people's, I suppose, other, other people's lives, you know, at, at your hands, you can't really be uh, not on your A game. So, you know, that wasn't really much of an option for me. So the option that I, I usually did was just before I could eat. So around, you know, 6 p.m., something like that. Whilst you are feeling kind of at your worst at that point, but go and do your workout then. And at least as soon as you're back, <laughs> you can you can have your food and your water um, and kind of re- replenish. But I think one of the biggest things was knowing your limits again. So, you know, I did it so you don't have to, is I found out what the limits are and, you know, all, all long workouts were just gone. I had a time limit one hour and anything I could do I could do some hard workouts I could put in some quality 
uh, knowing that I could eat and drink as soon as I was done. But, um, you know, there was no, uh, yeah, no way you could do something like a two hour, three hour um, workout. So it's just about trying to keep things ticking over, realize that, you know, the whole point of Ramadan is supposed to be quite a spiritual month where you kind of introspect, think about the things you know, in your life that are going good and be thankful for them, you know, give more to charity um, and just try and be a bit of a better person in general. And, you know, I think it's the point of the month is to not really focus too much on other things like your FTP or your, you know, things like that. And and I do think it's helpful. It's nice to have a month where you just put, you know, other things in your life first. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? That the, that the realization that it brings on like a spiritual level is very different to the the sort of the way I approached it, which was like, okay, well, there's a, there's a physical challenge here and we can't be <laughs> training hard at this and you can't eat and drink yeah. here and there. But that reflection of the gratitude it brought you to be able to do it at all, I think is, mm-hmm. that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I lost a lot of weight. That's the one thing I would say is because you really struggle to get more than one proper meal in as a month goes on. I think, you know, your, your stomach tolerance gets lower and lower as you get used to just being hungry first few days are always really difficult and then you kind of just get into a pattern um where you get used to it and for me i lost about five kilos over over the um over the month of ramadan um yeah which you know and probably the the physiological effect on your metabolism as well where your body goes from you know expending energy and during workouts to just doing anything it can to keep hold of energy for you so you know really slows down your metabolism um, mm. so you do have a bit of a sort of bounce back after ramadan where you know you can gain weight quite easily if you're not if you're not careful afterwards yeah yeah it's very interesting that the idea of it becomes more spiritual it becomes more of a reflective thing it's yeah that's that's very interesting a challenging time in different different ways isn't yeah. it <laughs> yeah. yeah definitely <laughs> All right. So last question then, what, what do you see the future holding for you in terms of, in terms of life career and, and triathlon, well, multi-sport choices? Yeah. yeah so um, life career wise. Um, so my plan is to um, do surgical, uh, basically uh, so, you know, become a surgeon. So the problem is, is that's, you know, not very conducive with triathlon. <laughs> so I, think, I think it's about kind of picking your battles. So for example, I've had quite a nice um, part of my career now where I've been able to just take a few less shifts. And that's really, you sort of nicely coincided with doing the world champs. Um, and, you know, I felt like I was able to train quite well for them. I've got a busy few months coming up and, you know, because it's over um, the winter as well, um, my next race is the Sprint um, World Championship duathlon in over in Spain in Ibiza uh, in April. So that'll help me kind of, you know, I'll be able to just do shorter workouts, you know, just kind of more fun stuff um, and try and get a bit of speed back in, in slow legs. <laughs> um, so <laughs> that's my net, my plan at the moment. But I do, I do, I do intend on going back to triathlon because one of the things I've struggled with the most is putting a good race together. Um, I've still not had one of those races where I feel like all three have gone well, uh, particularly the bike and the run. I feel like, you know, I I finally got my run back on track, but unfortunately had this little injury, um, which meant a slow bike. So I really think there's some, uh, you know, some work left there. So I will hopefully go back to the long distance. That's the thing that's tempting you back, is it? The idea of the the idea of putting them all together on one day. Exactly. Yeah. 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 
Brilliant. I think it's the thing that keeps us all coming back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. I don't know if it's possible, but, you know, it's because uh, every I think everyone always goes goes away thinking there's something they could have done better. Um, but I just want to put out a race where I think everything's gone pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Hey, well, look, I think you did a, you did a brilliant job in St. George managing all the various challenges you had along the way and uh, to manage yourself through the back pain in the race and have a really good run more than anything. I'm just really glad that you, you enjoyed it so much the way you described enjoying the run and going past the crowds and, and all of that on race day. Yeah. I think that's just, the, the just if I could mention, uh, because, uh, you know, my, my girlfriend who came with me as well, um, I'd just give a shout out to her cause she was on, on one of the corners and every time I saw her as also another huge, uh, you know, morale boost kept me running, <laughs> kept me going in the, during that race. What's your girlfriend's name? Enrica. Oh, there you go. You see, you get a, you get a name check as well, Enrique. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brilliant. Listen, Karim, thank you very much for spending the time with us and sharing your story. It's been uh, it's been fascinating to hear about how you've balanced the the life of a busy doctor and trainee surgeon with qualifying for the seventy point three World Championships. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Cheers, Karim. Cheers. All right. Hope you enjoyed the episode. I think the the biggest takeaway for me there is just that reiteration of the idea of you can only improve as fast as the recovery that you can make from the training that you've done. So it's not just about sketching out a training plan and delivering the training plan. It's about being flexible. And on the days when you're simply not capable of delivering a training session, making sure you, you know, you do what you can, but no more than you can recover from. I think that's the absolute key to it. And it might be that It takes a little bit longer to get where you want to go in the short term. But in the long term, I think that the payback is you learn to work with your body and you learn to work around the other demands on your time rather than, you know, bullying yourself into being able to do something when you're super, super tired. That, I think, is a very short term fix. And it's something that Kareem's talked about there. He always prided himself on his ability to to go beyond and push himself to do things even when he was really, really tired. I think there's a a limited time window on treating your body like that and it's much, much more effective to work with your body and its capabilities around the limitations that you've got at a given time. So great. Thanks very much for joining us there, Kareem. I think that was was a really enjoyable conversation and uh, I think it's going to be super helpful for people. All right, a couple of things before we wrap up today. You can head over to precisionfuelandhydration.com and you can use their free fuel and hydration planning tool. I love this company. They've been with us since the early days of the podcast. I love the electrolytes, um, the electrolyte sachets that they sell. I love their new fuel sachets. I love the chews. Uh, I love the energy gels. Everything about them. They're a great bunch of people. And that, I think, is is the most important thing. But just as important as that is, the products that they sell work really, really well for people. And as you enter wintertime, you're doing a lot of, more of your training indoors on the turbo, um, very hot environments causing lots more sweat than usual. You're going to need to be replacing your electrolytes alongside fuel in order to stay hydrated because hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about drinking fluid that's matched the amount of electrolytes you personally lose as well. So their fuel and hydration planning tool helps you understand your own carbohydrate, electrolyte and fluid needs so you can refine your own strategy during training. 
You can also book a free one-to-one video consultation with PFNH's athlete support team, and they'll be happy to help you nail your race nutrition plan and help you perform your best in both training and in racing. So get over there and check them out. Remember, you can use the code OA22 at checkout for 15% off your first order. You can also head on over to teamoxygenetic.com. I think we've got the most comprehensive triathlon coaching program for busy age groupers. It's obviously worked for Cream. It'll work for you as well. We specialize in helping people who have incredibly busy lives balance their life alongside their triathlon training. You can book a call with me or the team to see if you'd be a good fit for training with us. And yeah, we can find out how we could best help you out. Something else you can do as well, we're moving the podcast over onto having a version on YouTube as well. So you guys can get over there and check that out. Um, we're working in collaboration with Ironman Europe and we've been producing some, they're, they're titled Ask a Coach. Um, Ironman Europe's competitors have been submitting questions for us via their Instagram feed and I've been answering them for them to, to help them get the kind of coaching advice that you regular listeners will have had in Coach's Couch over the years. So we've now separated that out. The Ask a Coach podcast is now going to be going out every other week as a separate podcast and we're also putting that out on YouTube but we're also putting out video interviews on YouTube as well. So we'd love to hear what you're making of these. It might be that you uh, that you want to sit and watch an interview rather than listen to it on your drive. And if so, that's now going to be over there on YouTube for you. So what you could do for us, you could head to YouTube and you could subscribe to our channel. Then you don't miss any of the new episodes that are coming up. Um, and Kareem's episode, we're going to mix in some of the photos of him racing in um, in St. George. And he's got some amazing photos. He talked in his interview there about how stunning the bike course was, but words don't do it justice. The photos he came back with are amazing. So we're going to mix some of those in with his interview as well. So yeah, hopefully... Um, you will enjoy watching um, interviews as well as listening to the interviews as well. But yeah, we're super excited to be working in collaboration with Ironman Europe. We've got lots of plans for working with them over the coming year and some of the UK-based events. So watch this space for more. But check out our Ask a Coach episodes on both podcast and on YouTube. And that just about brings us to the end of this week's episode. So remember, there's links in the show notes so you don't have to remember them. Until next week, have a great, safe training and racing week. I'm Coach Rob Wilby, and you've been listening to the Oxygen Addict Triathlon Podcast. See ya. See ya.